The scripture for today is from Galatians 3, 15 through 22. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hannah, for reading the scripture for us. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds to believe and understand the scripture. We pray in Christ's name, amen. My name is Rob Plummer, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn East. Um, Pastor Kevin very graciously invited me to fill in today. I have to wonder, he didn't say this, but I have to wonder in the back of his mind if he was thinking, now this is the perfect day for Rob to fill in because everyone will have an extra hour of sleep. They'll be fortified. They won't fall asleep while he's preaching, so they'll be good. We're going through the book of Galatians, and just to kind of remind you a little bit about this, this is one of Paul's letters to a series of churches in the region of Galatia. It's one of his 13 letters in the New Testament. And when we look in the New Testament, we find that Paul traveled on this huge missionary journey around the years AD 47 to 48. He was traveling with Barnabas and uh, John Mark, and I think we have a map of this. He was, um, part of the journey took him into what's modern-day Turkey now, in Asia Minor, Southern Asia Minor, and he visited Iconium and Lystra and Derby and Pisidian Antioch. And in these cities, he preached the gospel and he founded churches and he appointed leaders, and then he moved on. And we discover in the New Testament that not long after he moved on from this, he heard that some false teachers had come into the area. And they were very sneaky and subtle because they didn't just say, well, no, don't believe any of that. They said, yeah, Jesus is good. The Bible's good. All this is good. But you need more than this. You, if you really want to be part of God's people, uh, you need to follow the way of Moses. You need to follow the way of Abraham. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Sabbath Laws. This is kind of hard for us to understand, but if you, if you see someone driving around with a, a van that says Jesus saves on the back, uh, back then they would be driving around with a van that says circumcised, right? They wanted, they wanted you to know this was a badge of religious devotion and honor. And Paul is, in writing this letter to the Galatians, he's, he's like a defense lawyer. He's pacing back and forth. He's just so upset that they're, that they're deviating from the pure and simple gospel that he preached to them. In Galatians chapter four, 
He says, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. In Galatians 5, he says, if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And again, I think this is somewhat so distant to us and the the issues seem sort of strange to us, but I want you to imagine with me, if you will, how how this could work out. So imagine 2,000 years ago, you live in the town of Lystra, and then you, you just hear some news. Hey, over in Iconium, uh, you know, the guy who's the elder of the church there, Julius, he, he, he got circumcised. And, and his sons, Marcus and Quintus, uh, they, they got circumcised too. And then a week later on Facebook, there's a Galatian women's Facebook page. Uh, his, his wife, Amelia, gets on there and says, hey, normally I wouldn't be talking about this, but I want you to know what a blessing circumcision has been to our family, right? Marcus and Quintus used to fight with their sister all the time, but now they're just so well-behaved. Julius struggled with anger, but there's just a new peace and blessing. We feel like we're finally home. So we were missing something. We finally have it. Lots of thumbs up, check, check, check. Like that, like that. Then Euodia over in Pisidian Antioch, she chimes in. She goes, you know, not, that's great. Thanks for sharing. Not, not the same with our family. But for us, it was really Sabbath. Remember those teachers came through a couple of months ago? And when we got home, Cornelius said, we need to do the Sabbath. And I thought, oh, I got to prepare meals for two days now. But, but when we started doing it, right, it was, it was like there was something that we were lacking. And, and before that, we had all these health problems. We had all these financial problems. But when we entered into God's rest, through Sabbath observance, we found that we really, we really were part of God's people again. By the way, look at this collage of Sabbath photos with warm lighting, which shows how awesome my family is now that we practice the Sabbath. <laughs> right? So we could see how in the, the subtle, these little subtle ways, people were saying, you need something more than Jesus. And Paul is not subtle at all. He says, if you add to Jesus to get fullness, you deny Jesus. If you add to the gospel you deny the gospel. Anything added to Jesus for salvation, for wholeness, for life is a denigration and denial of the sufficiency of Jesus. And so this is why he's so impassioned. And very quickly, just reviewing the letter, very super fast to get where we are in chapter three. In chapters one and two, he's defending his apostleship, defending his gospel, because that's all wrapped up. Did he preach the truth? Was the message he had really from God? And was it, or was it derived from other people? Then in chapter three, he starts just bam, 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 going through these arguments, attacking uh, the false teacher's views or attacking the premises that they're, they're based upon. So for example, in Galatians chapter three, verses one through five, he makes an argument based on experience. He says, you guys in Galatia, when I came and preached the gospel to you, did, and you, didn't you experience the joy of the Holy Spirit? You knew your forgiveness. You, you, you experienced change. That was not by obeying the Mosaic law. You experienced that by believing, by trusting the gospel that you heard. Secondly, he goes on to Abraham, verses six through nine in chapter three. He's like, you, okay, these people tell you you wanna be true sons of Abraham. Look at what Abraham, what it says about him in the Old Testament, what it says about him in the scripture. It says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you wanna be a child of Abraham, you need to follow God in faith, not in circumcision and Mosaic law observance. Third, 
He tells us in chapter three, verses 10 through 14, being under the law really puts one under a curse, right? If you wanna obey the law, Paul says, read the law. And the law says, unless you do everything written in it, you are under a curse. And he says, the good news is that Christ took the curse for us by being hanged on a tree, by being crucified for us. And and then we're moving into the next section, right? Just one argument, one argument after the other. Uh, Chapter three, verses 15 through 22. And in that section, he talks about promise and law and the true purpose of the law. So we're gonna be building off the notes in your handout now and they're looking under three main headings. The first one, Paul teaches us in this text about the priority, the priority and the permanence of God's promises. By the way, Kevin confirmed if I could alliterate my outline, I could eat the snacks in his office in between. So uh, that's one motivation I have here. But yes, so Paul challenges us to look to God first as a promise keeper. Look to God first as a promise keeper, not first as a rule maker. And we're gonna go verse by verse, but I have to just, we have to step aside for a brief moment to do a little historical review because there are all these, Abraham, promise, law, what is all this? Okay, just real quick historical review. So God is dealing with all of fallen humanity as this big mass. And then in the year 2000 BC, roughly, God focuses in his messianic rescue plan on Abraham and his descendants, right? There's a promise he, he gives to Abraham, the promise that Paul refers to here. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So around 2000 B.C., God communicates this to Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. The promise is recommunicated to Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. And Jacob is the promise is recommunicated to Jacob. And around, uh, you, may, you know the story about Jacob, his 12 sons, and how they sell Joseph into slavery, and Joseph becomes a ruler in Egypt. And around the year 1875 BC or so, um, there's a huge famine going on in Canaan, and Jacob discovers Joseph is still alive. So all of the Jacob and his children, descendants, they all moved to Egypt around, around 1875 BC. And they, they don't leave for 430 years, right? First they're guests, very soon they're slaves. And they call out to God for deliverance over many years. And finally, roughly the year 1445, 430 years later, God raises up Moses to deliver them out of Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, where he gives them his law, right? Not only the Ten Commandments, but so many laws we read in the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy. He gives them his holy laws. And that's the background that we're coming into here. And the false teachers in Galatia, they say, totally, right? Yeah, that's the story. And don't you see how the law is the fulfillment of the promise? The law and the promise are cut from the same cloth. If you're a people of the promise, you're people of the law. And Paul says, wrong, wrong. You're reading your Bible incorrectly. There's the promise is permanent. The promise takes priority. Don't flatten it out and make the promise and the law the same thing. They're different. We see him diving right into this in verse 15. He says, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life, right? Paul's a great preacher. He says, let me give you an illustration from your everyday life. 
Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. And this is just the lesser to the greater argument. Paul says, if you can't break a human covenant, certainly God can't break his covenant. The covenant takes priority. The covenant endures. The covenant is not superseded or misplaced by the law that's added later. I think one reason we have trouble kind of following this is a little bit of a translational challenge. The word that's translated here, covenant, it's the Greek word diatheke, is a word that was used in common language to mean last will and testament. That was the most common use of it, to mean someone's will. It's the instructions that you give for the disbursement of your possessions after you die. It's also a term used in the Bible for, for God's covenants. And, and Paul seems to he, be here alluding to last will and testament. This is true in Roman culture. It's true in Greek culture. It's true in Jewish culture. It's true in our culture. If you have a will, if you die with your will stipulating certain things, even things you would, maybe later would disagree with, that is, I mean, that is something that is hard and fast and holds up in court and people, people can't break it. Example of this in our own culture, Milton Hershey, I think we have a photograph of him, the founder of the famous Hershey Company, the Hershey Chocolates Company, died in 1945. And when he died, he left all of his shares in his company to a primary and secondary school, renamed in his honor, Milton Hershey School in Pennsylvania. What Mr. Hershey did not foresee is how successful his chocolate company would be. And now this school has an endowment of $14 billion, a billion dollars, the same size endowment as MIT. And they cannot do anything with the money according to the strict stipulations of the will beyond caring for children in that school. I've thought about moving up there (laughs) and enrolling. They spend over $100,000 a year on each student. Uh, and, and, but the point, the point is, if you can't break a human last will and testament, if you can't break a human covenant like that, how much more when God makes a promise, when God seals a testament, when God seals a covenant, is it enduring and lasting? The promise is enduring and lasting. Paul goes on in verse 17. He says, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So there's really two different things he's talking about here, right? There's a, there's a chronological priority and there's a logical priority. First, the chronological priority, he says the law is a latecomer. The, the promise it came hundreds of years before. It's prior, it's foundational, it's, it's permanent and lasting. It, it should be given priority in understanding the way God relates to people. And secondly, there's this just logical priority. If God has made a promise, you can't later turn that into a set of conditions. So it's, it's the promise, promise and condition are, are contradictory. They, don't, they don't, are not reconcilable. Perhaps an illustration from everyday life would help. Imagine for a moment that someone has a teenage daughter, right? I can imagine this, right? Imagine you have a teenage daughter. And imagine the father says to the teenage daughter on Monday, uh, hey, with the football game, high school football game this Friday, uh, I'll take you to Chick-fil-A beforehand. We'll have a daddy-daughter date, and then I'll drop you off at the game. But then imagine on Friday, mom looks at daughter's room, and daughter's room is not clean, as daughter has been instructed to do. And so mom says, 
uh, you can't go to the game tonight. You didn't clean your room. What does, what, does daughter, what does daughter say? Daughter says, but mom, dad promised me on Monday that I could go to the game, right? There's this appeal, but there was a prior arrangement. There was a gift. It was not conditional. This was given to me. This was something that was given. You can't come in later and change the rules. There's a sense of, there's an inherent human sense of chronological and logical priority that we understand that Paul's appealing to here in, um, in the way that God has interacted with humans. Pastor, uh, British pastor, has now passed away, John Stott said it this way. He said, in the promise to Abraham, God said, I will, I will, I will. But in the law of Moses, God said, thou shalt, thou shalt not. The promise sets forth the religion of God, God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law sets forth the religion of man, man's duty, man's works, man's responsibility. That's a little bit dangerous to read that out of context because clearly John Stott and we believe the law is of God. The law, as Paul says in Romans 7, the law is holy. The commandments are holy and righteous and good. But the question is, what is the purpose of the law? Is the purpose of the law a means to come to know God or is the purpose something else? Now we can, again, remembering the historical context, the Galatians, they're tempted to go over to a mosaic observance and to deviate from the original pure gospel they heard. We can, we can hear, okay, I can, I can understand the, Paul's making a logical appeal here. He's, he's appealing to promise. But how does, how does this matter to us in Louisville, Kentucky in the year 2018? I think it makes a great difference, really, whether you relate to God fundamenta- fundamentally as a promise keeper or as a rule maker. Right? Is your religion, if we can use that word, is your religion based on grace or is it based on performance? And when we relate to God first as promise keeper who lavishes his forgiveness and fellowship upon us as undeserving, then ironically, we're free to be very honest about our failures, right? And, and it doesn't leave, we don't wallow in our failures, but we're free to bring our sin and our shame and our failures to him to experience forgiveness. There's also this humility and transparency that spills over into human relationships to create a community of humility and transparency. That's, that's the difference between relating to God as promise keeper, as grace giver, or relating to God fundamentally as rule maker. Very, very different. Point number one, Paul teaches us in this passage about the priority and the permanence of God's promises. Secondly, in this passage, Paul teaches us that God's promises are fulfilled in and secured by a person, by the person of Christ, right? The false teachers in Galatia, uh, they, were, they were saying, oh yeah, God made promises. That's right. That's right. He made them to Abraham and his descendants. So if you want to be in that circle of blessing, you know what to do. You need to become it's too bad for you, you weren't born Jewish, but you can become Jewish, right? You can, you can become circumcised, you can follow Sabbath law, you can follow Passover, you can be part of this people that is blessed by God. Paul says, wrong, read the text more carefully, right? Paul says, read the text carefully, verse 16. He argues, he says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. 
So Paul is, is saying what really matters is that the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. So if you want to experience the promises of God, you need to belong to Christ. It doesn't matter about belonging to Abraham's physical descendants, some cultural linguistic group. You need to belong to Christ. And that's where you hold on to, latch on to, experience the promises of God. It's important that I think probably people have questions about this. We step aside for a second and talk about Paul's interpretive method here, right? So Paul is... uh, Paul knows that the the word he's quoting here, both in the Greek and the Hebrew, and for us, it's convenient in English, uh, the word seed is a collective singular. In other words, when we talk about seed, you could have a seed or you could be scattering seed and one could be singular and it could, could be plural depending on the context. And clearly, in the original context of Genesis, Abraham is envisioning many physical descendants in a physical land. That is undeniable. But Paul is saying, I want, Paul says, even the smallest details of the text report, he says, even in the way the promise was given and restated to Abraham and to his, to his immediate descendants, there's a singularity that comes out there. There's a singularity that's not fulfilled through physical descendants in a physical land. And we find that little pinpoint of singularity many places in the Old Testament, all the way back in Genesis 3, right? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the, the offspring, seems like a singular offspring, will crush the head of the serpent. And then in, in Genesis 49, we have this, the, the, the ruler's staff will not depart from Judah till he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. There's like this there's one, there's the whole nation of Israel, but then there's this one that's chosen. And then in 2 Samuel 7, David's told, you know, someone from your, one of your descendants will reign on the throne forever. I mean, how can someone reign on a, how can a human descendant reign on a throne forever? And then you're in Isaiah 49, and there's the, the suffering servant who not only rescues Jacob, that's too small a thing, but he's a light to the Gentiles and brings salvation to all nations. So you have these little all along, even as God's chosen Abraham and his descendants, and it's his messianic rescue plan through the Jewish nation, there are these little pinpoints of singularity that it's, it's like, how is all this going to fit together? And, and one analogy I've heard is when Jesus comes, he's, he's that melodic line, right? He's the melodic line that puts all these little harmonies into balance and shows how he fulfills all those. And so Paul's saying, don't miss the singularity of the promise, because ultimately, the promises of God are not fulfilled through through a Jewish nation in the physical land of Israel, but ultimately the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. Now, um, this obviously, you can see the appeal in Paul's argument to the, to the Galatians who are tempted to become Jewish. They say, no, becoming Jewish doesn't connect you with the promises of Christ. Being connected with Jesus is what connects you with the promises of God, right? But, but then we have to ask ourselves in modern-day Louisville, this doesn't seem as immediately applicable to us. How, how does this affect us? And I think it affects us greatly because, I mean, we take most, usually we take this for granted because 99% of us in here are not of Jewish ancestry, right? And, and to be a follower of Christ, we don't have to start speaking Hebrew and we don't have to follow Jewish customs and laws. We don't have to move to Israel, but, but we're gonna be part of a, a massive group of people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue before the throne of God. And so we're accepted because of, because of Christ and his work and not because we're part of a certain group. On, a, on, a little, on another level, I think it's really encouraging to remember how secure God has made the promise that he's given us. He hasn't just given the promise to Abraham. He hasn't just given the promise to us generally, but he's secured that promise so surely by by placing it in his son, the safest 
place that it could be. And the eternal son of God of indestructible life, the promise that's given to us can never be thwarted or destroyed. Just an analogy for this, uh, when at Christmas time, one set of grandparents we go to, they usually give the kids checks. And, and they've started even just giving the checks to me. Now, why do they get, even though the na- has the names of my children, why do they give the checks to me? They give the checks to me because they want to make sure, <laughs> they want to make sure that the kids get the money, right? They don't throw it away in the wrapping paper or leave it in the box or forget it. They have a check and leave it in their drawer at home. They know that I will take that and I will deposit it and I will make sure that they get it. God's promises to you are so sure and certain they're, they're ultimately secured because they're secured by his son and his perfect life and his atoning death. This is a wonderful place of security to have because everything else we have in life Everything else we are tempted to lean upon, whether it's our health, our financial security, our reputation, our relationships, whatever we lean upon ultimately will fail us. It may be in our moment of death that it fails, but ultimately those things will not support us. But if we are believers in Christ, if we are Christians, there's the bedrock of God's promises in Christ that are 100% secure and certain and confirmed and sealed and sure that we find in him. They will never, never fail us. Galatians 3, 15 through 22, first we see the priority and the permanence of God's promises. Secondly, we see God's promises are fulfilled in and secured by the person of Christ. Thirdly, we see the primary purpose of the law. And uh, again, we start by thinking about the, the the false teachers in Galatia, and they're like, yeah, let's talk about the law. The law is awesome. The law is there to make you holy, right? You, you pursue the law. It's an ethical pattern. For, it's a way for you to, to, to know God and to be holy. And Paul says, wrong, <laughs> wrong. The main purpose of the law, the main purpose of the law is to show you you're not holy, right? That you're, that you're and to be accepted by God, you need a holiness that is a gift outside of yourself, Verse 19, Paul lights into this. He says, what then is the purpose of the law? And you can see him pacing back and forth as the defense lawyer. And this is the question they're all asking. They're like, yeah, if the promise is prior, if the promise is permanent, if the promise and the law are, you know, never shall the twain meet, what, what, is, what is the purpose of the law, Paul? Why did God give the law? And he says, this is his answer, he says it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. And it's a little bit hard to understand, right? But let's, let's start with the latter part of it. Until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So uh, this speaks sort of like, here's the time of Abraham. The promise is shot like an arrow. It's flying through space. Doom, it lands, right, in the person and work of Christ. And so the, the, this time of law is preparatory in some way, right? It's not final. It's, it's preparatory for the fulfillment of the promise, But then he has a statement, the law was added because of transgressions. And the best interpreter of a text is the close, is the text around it. And if you go down to verse 22, it speaks again about the law here. The law is expressed through the scriptures. The law, the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. Somehow the the law is is imprisoning us, showing that we are imprisoned by sin. In Romans 3.20, where he's discussing a similar concept. Paul says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, but through the law, we become conscious of sin. 
So here's what Paul is saying, if we can paraphrase. Paul's saying, all of humanity, Gentiles and Jews are sinners. But the benefit of the law is that it shows you you're a sinner. (laughs) And it shows you you're a sinner in specific and discreet ways by confronting you with commandments that you transgress. So that you're not just some vague sinner, but as you are confronted by God's law, you realize, hey, I'm I'm an angry person. I'm I'm a slanderer. I'm a I'm I'm an adulterer. I'm a I, all, the very specific ways in which you're violating God's law, unless you realize I am deeply sinful and flawed, and God is very holy. Right? It the the law reveals us as transgressors, as violators of God's discrete and specific commandments. Paul goes on in the middle of verse 19. He says, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Moses, Moses the mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. This is, again, a little bit difficult to understand. Peter tells us in in his letters that some of Paul's letters or parts of letters are hard to understand. This may be one of them. But it seems that what Paul is arguing here is that even the way that the law and the promise are given, even the manner in which they're given shows the priority of the promise. He says, you know, when the giving of the law, you have God giving the law here on Mount Sinai. And then in, in Deuteronomy 33, Hebrews 2, Acts 7, talks about the angels the, surrounded by myriads of holy ones on Mount Sinai. So you have God, you have the angels, and then you have Moses as the mediator, and then you have the people. There's this layer, these layers of, of the, you know, shows, it shows there's a lack of immediacy. It's the way God intended it. God's law is holy, righteous, and good. But in the promise, it's God directly to Abraham. There's this immediacy that, that is an argument for the, the priority and superiority of the promise. It seems like that's what Paul is is getting at here. A modern day analogy. Let's say you were to go to the Oval Office. You choose the administration in which you want to visit. We're not going to get involved in politics. Make it someone you really respect, okay? So whether it's Obama or Reagan or whoever. So you go to the Oval Office. There's two ways you can visit. One, you're led by the press secretary in and, you know, and there's the cabinet there and you're part of a receiving line and that's exciting. It magnifies the dignity of the president who has all these people attending him. So that's, that's one way. That's kind of like the law in some sense, giving the law. Or, or there's one where you go into the Oval Office and it's only the president there. And he says, will you shut the door? Have a seat. Let's talk for a while, right? Which one of those two experiences would you go out talking about more? Would you, would you would be more excited to share about it? There's an immediacy, an intimacy, uh, a priority to, to that to that kind of conversation. Paul goes on in verse 21. He says, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? He loves, he loves to put his opponent's words out there. Like, you know, Paul was criticized for speaking against the law. Paul, and his opponents are probably like, yeah, Paul, you're, you're, making, the promise, you're making the law like an enemy of, of the promise. What, what are you doing? He says, wrong. I'm, that's not what I'm doing. I'm not saying the law is opposed to the promises of God. Absolutely not. He goes on, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. He's like, the law needs to be used lawfully. The purpose of the law is not to give life, is not to impart life. That's the purpose of God's grace and promises in Christ. Don't try to make the law do something 
it was not intended to do. A couple of weeks ago, I preached in West Virginia, in Charleston, West Virginia, at uh, former, one of the former pastors here, Matt Friend, has a church there. They're very sweet people. Uh, stayed there one night, stayed in the Hampton Inn in Charleston, and they have, like every hotel, you have these little toiletries in, in the bathroom, and so I have really dry hands, so I was really happy to get some lotion, a little bottle of lotion. And over the last two weeks, I've been using this lotion. I've been, it's kind of a greasy lotion and kind of weird. And uh, in fact, this morning, I was using it the last time. I was banging it out to get the last bit of lotion out, and I looked down at it, and it said conditioner. <laughs> right? If you try to use something the way it wasn't intended, don't be surprised if you find it frustrating. Right? The purpose of the law is to show you your, the depth of your sinfulness and to drive you to Christ for his mercy and his love. Verse 22, Paul wraps it up. He says, the scriptures declare that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, right? The, the law puts us on death row and locks us up when we are confronted with the, the violations that we've committed against God's holy standard. It locks us up. But that's a good place to be because it's reality that we're all in and it then puts us ready to receive the pardoning word of Christ who can set us free and pardon us from the, from the punishment that we deserve. Paul finishes verse 22. He says, so that, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Christ, might be given to those who believe. At a very level of practical application on this last point, I think you have to judge this for yourself and what, what you see in your life and in the church, but is, is it not true that sometimes we have a very low appreciation of how great our Savior is because we have a very low view of our sin? We don't have a very poignant and deep and insightful view of how sinful and flawed we are, and that, that is directly related, isn't it, to how little we know of the Scriptures? Because when we read the Scriptures, when we read God's holy standards, uh, then we see how how huge we've sinned against God. And, but that doesn't lead us to despair if we're in Christ, but it leads us to see how, how great and wonderful and sufficient our Savior is. Martin Luther, we have to have a quote from Martin Luther if we're talking about the law and the promise, the law and the gospel. In the 1500s, he said it this way. He said, the principal point of the law, and we need to read, read God's holy law so that we can experience this. The principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it shows them their sin, and, and by their knowledge of it, they may be humbled and terrified and bruised and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace, and so to come to the blessed seed that is Christ. So we see in the short text here, Galatians 3, 15 through 22, Paul teaches us about the priority and the permanence of God's promises. He teaches us about God's promises fulfilled in and secured by the person of Christ. He teaches us about the primary purpose of the law, which is to point us to Christ. Um, it's been a long time, but I used to live in China. I was an English teacher in China. And uh, one of the things I loved to do uh, was to, after teaching English, was to, full-time job, was to speak with my students about the Bible and about Christ. And they would come and hang out with me. And um, one of them in particular used to come a lot named Diana, and she used to argue. She was not a Christian, and she wanted to argue about the Bible and argue about all this sort of stuff. 
But one day she came and things were a little bit different. I didn't realize that till, till halfway in the conversation. But she had, there was a newspaper article she had read that she was very upset about. She said in this article, it talks about a kid on a bus and someone sort of threw the kid out the window and, and they died. So I was ready for her to say, you know, the problem of evil, how can a good God let this happen and things like that. And she, her, her train of thought was going somewhere different. She said, the Bible says I need to love that person and I can't do that. I can't love that person, right? And that, what, what I saw in that moment was God's holy law revealing how deeply to her she was a sinner. She was incapable of measuring up to God's standard. But what a wonderful grace that is when God does that. And it shows, and because at the same time that he shows us how we're incapable and how we can't measure up to a standard, he turns our eyes at the same moment from looking at our sin and our total spiritual bankruptcy to looking to Christ and seeing that Christ lived the life that we could never live. And he died the death that we deserve to die. And because of that, we can be accepted by him. We remember that every Sunday when we take communion. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. If you are a Christian and you are joining us here today, how delighted we are to, to welcome you, brother or sister, and we invite you to partake of communion with us. During the communion time, you'll see lines filing towards stations. If you get in one of those, you, when you get to the front, you can tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice or the wine. If you are not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here today. What a wonderful day to be here, to hear the gospel, to hear the good news that Christ is not calling you, God is not calling you to climb up a ladder of works or rituals to get to him, but God has come down to you, fulfilling all his promises to you in Christ. And what he's calling you to do is to look to Jesus, to trust in his life for the life you couldn't live, to trust in his death, to pay the punishment for all your sins as a free, as a free gift, a promise fulfilled in Christ. And I hope, I hope that uh, I just beg of you today, if you're not a believer, call out to the Lord uh, and share that with someone before you leave. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.